Previously on House of Fantods, Cassandra learns more about how the mass shooter was programmed from his foster sisters, while the others explore the grounds of the house in Buckley, and a ghost delivers a message to the FBI. Here's to driving into the belly of the beast and prevailing, to our children and our children's children never being forced to face down the monsters the way we've had to. Jean Sate raised his coffee cup for the toast, smiling grimly the way only a Frenchman can. His companion had generously spiked it with some of the bourbon he'd smuggled from back home in Kentucky. The warm elixir burned slightly as he sealed the toast with a swig. And to those who aren't afraid to let out a little rebel yell while they're doing it, the army lieutenant replied. The driver wasn't supposed to be drinking. He had his welding job in the morning then had to drive his employer to a meeting and couldn't afford to lose either job over a hangover, especially since he was paid extra to house the luxury car in his garage. He likes to call the Bentley the Beast, he said, and likes to say he only has room for one beast in his life, so carefully screens out drivers with the beastly habit of drinking but there had to be exceptions. Paris was free after more than four years of brutal occupation by a madman's bloodthirsty minions, and there was much work to do to put the city back together again. But for tonight, there was celebration. Sovereignty is a precious thing, my friend, the Americans said always worth the battle fought to return it to the people it's been taken from. Do you ever think about what you'd do to protect your freedom? How about the freedom of everyone you love? These two men have done that and more. One in support of the French 2nd Armored Division as a welder in an off-the-radar garage, and the other with the U.S. Army's 4th Infantry Division. And what they're celebrating is success. France is free, and the people of Paris are dancing in the streets with Allied soldiers. I've been reading this American author of weird and fantastic tales, the young Frenchman said. Goes by the name of Lovecraft had to stop when I realized what I was reading between the lines made it pretty clear this guy hates Jews. Turns out, he's one of Hitler's favorite authors. Ever hear of him? Wrote this one little book titled Call of Cthulhu. Do you know it? The American lieutenant shook his head no. He'd never had much of a taste for the weird and fantastic. He preferred books on strategy and pulled a slim volume of Art of War out of his jacket pocket. 
This little book, for instance, he said, understanding who and what you're up against is imperative in war, especially if you're outgunned. Lieutenant William Howard and Jean Sate ended up drinking that flask of Kentucky bourbon whiskey and talking till dawn. When it was time for the young driver to leave for the garage, they had bonded over a deep love and sense of protectiveness for the children neither of them had yet fathered. Having seen the landscape littered with children orphaned by the Nazi agenda, each vowed to give any child who needed it their love, their guidance, and most of all, a home where they would learn about the love and reverence for freedom it takes to defend it at all costs. As they parted, Jean insisted on taking Lieutenant Howard's address so they could stay in touch. Perhaps he would one day visit him in America. Folding it into his pocket, he tipped his cap as each man staggered off in a different direction. That folded paper was still in his pocket when he fired up the Bentley at the garage shortly after noon and headed to the home of his employer, who was going to a meeting at a hotel in the center of the city, in the car he liked to call The Beast. knew a man whose house was as isolated deep in the woods as House of Fantod's doppelganger here in Buckley. He told me a story about the time he was celebrating 420 one afternoon when the doorbell rang. He wasn't expecting anyone and hadn't heard a car approaching, so was understandably surprised. But when he opened the door, there was no one there. So he did the only thing that made sense to him in the moment. He grabbed his gun and ran outside barefoot, crouching low as he swept to the right and then to the left, doing a perimeter search, just like he was in a godforsaken stoner sequel to Die Hard. Which is what we were watching agents Hasselhoff and Anderson do as we sat amusing ourselves while I explained to the girls that this is the reason some people should have the good sense to just stay away from the sativas. This, ladies, is why the adults must toke responsibly and have a clear idea of how our drug of choice affects us and, in turn, the people around us. Put that in your yippee and smoke it. <laughs> The ghost of draft-dodging Stephen and Jared the mass murderer sat on the roof of the carriage house laughing their ghostly laughter at the two FBI agents, while a swarm of dark energy parasites followed them around the perimeter of the house. It was only a matter of time before one or more latched on, which Abuela Paladin hoped didn't happen. The last thing any of us need is armed FBI agents running around with parasitic energy attachments. 
Hazel was just filling us in on the backstory of the Bentley in the carriage house when the two agents finished with their pointless perimeter search, holstering their guns as they approached. They said they needed another look at Jared's room, which seemed as pointless as their perimeter search since everything but the furniture had been boxed and removed weeks ago by investigators which Millie did her best to articulate without actually saying anything insulting. The kids got skills. Besides, she said, the house is in a bad mood today. Won't let anyone in. Why do you think we're out here on the porch? Either the two FBI agents had been trained at Quantico to never believe what anyone has to say, or we were once again being treated to the basic bias against the veracity of someone in foster care, because Millie's claims were soundly dismissed by the two authority figures, who promptly explained that they could come back with a warrant. Yawn. The three foster sisters shrugged in unison and told them to have at it, pointing casually toward the front door. At which point the door swung open on its own, and my crew and I stifled more than a few <laughs> giggles. Well, this is going to be interesting, if by interesting you mean fun. We were just starting to take bets on how long the two clueless agents would last when all hell broke loose behind the closed door. I swear, even the rage starlings put in an appearance. No! Hazel put on her game face and tried to continue with the story of how their foster father's dad ended up in possession of the car from the Paris dream Wallace and I had been treated to, but was again cut short by the two agents. Both of them came bursting through the door out onto the porch like some slapstick Saturday night live routine. Pamela Anderson's department issue bun had come loose, her hair now framing her face inappropriately as we tried once again to stifle our laughter. <laughs> Unfortunately, neither Jared nor Stephen bothered to stifle theirs. Agent Muldoon seemed unaware that he had grabbed the splintered picture frame with broken glass that had flung itself at him as he passed it in the hallway, which is as far as either of them managed to get. He handed it to Millie and thanked the three foster sisters for their time. As we watched them speed down the driveway and past the still-idling Sebring, I glanced at the picture frame. It held a letter to Lieutenant William Howard, dated 6 October 1945, a little over a year after Germany surrendered. Millie noticed it piqued my interest and handed it to me, warning me to be careful of glass shards and splinters. The letter was just cryptic enough to raise goosebumps, especially the closing. Yours eternally, from Rillier, Jean Sait, the welder. I handed it to Wallace, 
and she dutifully explained that Rillier is the mythical city created by H.P. Lovecraft. You know, the one in which Cthulhu sleeps, she said. She also pointed out several references to the story mentioned in the letter. It was Marina who grabbed the picture frame and read the letter aloud. Dear Will, Remembering you and your rebel yell fondly, especially the books we shared, I'm leaving this to you because your reading seems to have prepared you for driving into the belly of the beast better than mine has. Perhaps this gift will help you to know the enemy better. Mine has only delivered nightmares that seem designed to last a lifetime. A questionably short lifetime. I've drained and flushed the gas tank before shipping her out of precaution. Just take care to feed the right fuel to the beast. In case you're wondering how to keep the beast purring, scratch her belly. There are secrets no man could dream of, and none of us can escape unless he knows what fuels them. Yours in Rillier, Jean Sait. Well, I can tell you that one of the books he's talking about cryptically in this is Lovecraft's Call of Cthulhu, Wallace said. If the mention of Rillier wasn't enough, the delivery of nightmares definitely is. Any clue what the other book was? The other book was The Art of War, Abuela Paladin said. She was sure of it. And there's something affixed to the underside of that Bentley that the Frenchman wanted Will Howard to find. Something that has to do with an enemy delivering nightmares. She turned to the other three foster sisters and asked if their foster father might possibly have a way to lift the car off the floor of the carriage house. Like a hydraulic lift, maybe? Or maybe even just an undercar roller? I wasn't sure just what angle she was getting at as she sauntered toward the carriage house. Turns out, it was an angle grinder, which is just the kind of thing Abuela Paladin would have on board the Abuela Express. We continued to listen to Hazel tell us the backstory of the beast, while Abuela rolled under the Bentley with it and proceeded to cut something free that had been welded to the underside. Lieutenant Howard had never had any interest in driving the luxury car. He liked to say the steering wheel on the wrong side of the beast was downright unnatural. He left it to his only son, Will Jr., with the request that it never be sold. He used to tell us the story his dad told him about the man who had the car delivered to him in thanks for sharing a flask of bourbon with him after the Allied liberation of Paris, she explained. Ladies, I do believe we've got it. Abuela rolled out from under the Bentley with the grinder in one hand and a leather pouch in the other. It was the size and shape of a legal envelope 
and obviously held papers of some kind. Handing it to her daughter, she suggested we go back outside to more easily read whatever was in it in the light. Those who have not experienced the complex twists and turns of life on the psychic spectrum may not know how disorienting it can be when an otherwise extraordinary life takes a left turn into the extraordinarily weird, so I'll just cut to the chase. The contents of the leather envelope kicked the extraordinarily weird up a notch. Correction, it kicked it up all the notches. 26 August 1944. I'm writing all of this down before I forget any of it. It's not like my employer to be so chatty with me, especially after a meeting like the one I drove him to today. But I could swear he sounded scared. And after hearing what he had to say, he's got every reason to be and to want someone else to know what he's learned. He said the meeting began no differently than they always do. Each solicitor of the other four entities delivered the sentiments of their employer just as he did. He said there were no surprises about the usual timeline they went over. Their presentations outlined each entity's plans for the next hundred years, including managing their part in the production of what they needed in order to maintain the desired balance of energies. The look on his face as he spoke was unlike anything I'd ever seen like the weight of the world rested on his shoulders. He said the man who always officiates at these meetings asked each of them if they had heard anything about a secretive group calling itself the opposition. None of us had. He went on to say they'd made the mistake of assuming it was some kind of militia working behind the scenes to secure freedom from the Nazis. But they were wrong. The opposition is a select group of individuals from around the world who no longer wish to serve the old god. At first, I wasn't sure what he was talking about, until he mentioned dreams. Turns out that Lovecraft novel I tossed into the sane out of disgust for the writer's anti-Semitism may not have been entirely fiction. Not only was he saying Cthulhu is real, but he was saying the old one has been compelling world leaders to keep him happily fed since the beginning of civilization. Until now. Rather than continue to serve him, the opposition has decided to simply take his power, including the power to control us through our dreams. And that means taking control of Cthulhu's food supply something they called dark energy. Humans produce it by committing acts that resonate at the very lowest vibration. Everyone knows Hitler was fixated on the occult. It's what led them to uncover the truth about the opposition. Between the influence of Henry Ford and H.P. Lovecraft, Hitler's anti-Semitism was elevated to a height that allowed him to dream big big enough for the sky. 
Among the plans he and the opposition members of his inner circle came up with was to create satellites to launch into orbit. They envisioned those satellites having onboard computers capable of processing more information than we even have words for today. Everything from weapons to devices that would insert thoughts directly into people's minds. They won't stop until they've figured out how to engineer Cthulhu's powers and then use the technology to control the production of dark energy. Many of them have already been secreted away to the United States under Operation Paperclip. America's reputation is above reproach right now, so it's the perfect place to hide their work in plain sight. The end game is to enslave Cthulhu and control all of the human race. They're also working tirelessly to develop the ability to cross into other dimensions in order to enslave people there and increase the production of dark energy. There will no longer be a balance of energies. Dark energy alone will prevail. And if that happens, its corrosive effect will have a disastrous impact on life as we know it. Not just in this dimension, but in all of them. Like the fantabulists write about in their stories of the weird and fantastic. There's a honeycomb-shaped membrane between dimensions that the old one has been showing our employers in their dreams, which they hadn't understood until now. Basically, interdimensional colonization. Because what people are producing here isn't enough for them. The opposition has developed a taste for it. It's an addictive drug to them. And unless they're careful, the unregulated manufacturing and consumption of it will destroy the membrane separating dimensions. And once that membrane is gone, so is existence itself. The opposition, as it turns out, is a drug-addicted death cult. Abuela Paladin's jaw had clenched as she read. She said there was one more page as she shuffled the pages and cleared her throat. <clears> throat> Dated May Day, 1946. He writes, My employer is dead as is every other solicitor from that meeting, and their drivers. One by one, they have each been eliminated, picked off by some unseen hand, some by mysterious accident, some by stroke or heart attack, and some by poison. At first, when news came filtering in about the deaths, I had shrugged them off as mere coincidence, but not any more. It was the poisonings that sent up the red flags and made me start wondering about the other deaths. Accidents, strokes, and heart attacks can all be staged. I am the last one left, and I think I know the reason why. The Beast My employer put the car in my name when he bought it. He said it was so I'd be compelled to do a good job knowing my reward would one day be ownership of a fine luxury car I could otherwise never own. 
but I think he did it as a precaution. I have no idea whether the other solicitors did the same with their drivers, but I'm certain it's the only reason he wasn't killed sooner. He couldn't be traced through the car's registration. But I can. If anyone were to have seen it outside the hotel where the meeting was held, they would be able to connect me to it. And it is now the reason I go into hiding. I'm going to make sure this information is secured and delivered to someone practiced in the art of war, someone experienced at facing down monsters, who loves the children he hasn't even fathered yet, enough to defend the one freedom far too many take for granted, the freedom to simply live.